When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is Maryland Governor Wes Moore. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. Now, we're going to get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the link to our sponsor, Sleep Me by Chili Sleep, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. So please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. I want to get y'all to Annapolis when you do it live. Capital city in the United States. I love Annapolis. You got the Maryland flag behind you. Wow, huh? I'm telling you. But you know, and, and I and actually I gotta tell you um something that's very, very cool is right there um is the handwritten resignation that George Washington wrote when he resigned his commission. Because you are you are you are you are you're right, Mr. Carville. It is this is the former capital of this country. And this is where in this building right here is where George Washington resigned his commission and was the first time in the history of this country that power was willfully turned over and resign. So this is the foundation of democracy right here. I I, I, did, I didn't realize that, but it's one of, one of my favorite places in the United States. I was just there last November, October, and the, the whole town is just, is, it's the best state capital, I think. We get over, we get over a couple times a year, and I love the capital, I love the town, we love to go to the Naval Academy. It's just, it's, it's absolutely fabulous. Um, <laughs> well, all right, that's good, but I, I, but I do want to introduce our guest, James, and let, let me just, uh, a teeny bit of background. 2001, I gave the commencement speech at Johns Hopkins, and I signaled out a young graduating senior who was involved in juvenile justice programs. It was an unusual moment of prescience. That graduate was Wes Moore, now the governor of Maryland, an earlier a Rhodes Scholar, decorated Afghanistan veteran, ran one of the largest anti-poverty programs in the country. It is a cliché. But Democrats of all stripes say Westmore has future written all over him. So, Governor, first, thanks for joining us, and let's talk about the present. In your state of the state, you vowed to end child poverty in your right. state. That's really ambitious. There are almost, I think, 188,000 kids in poverty in Maryland. That's right. You want to expand the child tax credit and earn income tax credit. What else? Well, you know, and, and we're doing it because it works. Right. And we're doing it because in a state like Maryland that has the highest median uh, income uh, of anywhere else inside inside this country. The fact that we have so many children who are living in poverty is inexcusable. And and we know the tools that are going to be necessary in order to make this happen where uh, and it's why I proposed during my first legislative session that we are going to have an enhanced earned income tax credit because it shows and there is value to making sure that we are going to value work and support working families that we are going to make sure we have permanent the child tax credit. Uh, you know, and, and, I, and, I re, and I remember, Al, you know, during uh, when I was running Robin Hood, which is one of the largest poverty fighting organizations in this country, uh, you know, we were working on this for years to try to get the state to make this adjustment. And I remember uh, that I was trying to get the former governor to uh, add a line in their, in their speech, in their state of the state, about the child tax credit because it was so effective. I literally wrote the line. And I said, you can use this in the state of the state. And when they didn't use it, I remember speaking with a former colleague of mine, and I was a little bit pissed off that he didn't use it. And, uh, and he said to me, we worked for six months to try to get him to include a line in the speech. But what if you could write the whole speech? And three weeks ago, I gave my first state of the state that talked about the earned income tax credit, the, the child tax credit. And yes, making sure we can get to a $15 minimum wage and making sure we're indexing it to inflation. If we can do those things, 
we are going to lift 152,000 children up the economic ladder, up a rung in the economic ladder. And it's gonna be the most sizable thing that not just the state of Maryland can, can do, it is going to set the pace for the entire country and making us say we will not tolerate the fact that we have children who are born in a situation that they, they are not responsible for, but we're also destining them to a lifetime of poverty. We can change that and we're going to in the state of Maryland. Governor, will it complicate that, that really ambitious and really important goal that the federal government is actually cutting back now with the House Republicans in control yep. on some of the COVID-involved, uh, uh, the child tax credit, for instance? That's right. Uh, uh, I mean, what do you, you – there's you, you can't expect anything out of Washington these next two years, can you? You know, it's fun. When, when we saw how the child tax credit was was done for, for the year, you know, initially I, I pushed for it and I said we need to make this permanent. But I was told when it was done for a year, they're like, but no one's going to go back and kick that many children back on poverty. And I realized, I was like, you have not met the Republican Congress, have you? Because <laughs> they had no problem kicking these children right back into a state of poverty. And so, you know, like, no, I, I think the thing that we know uh, from our perspective and from the, from the state of Maryland is we're going to protect our children. And we're going to do what it takes to protect our children. And so that means that we plan on taking the lead. We plan on taking the lead on the child tax credit. We plan on taking the lead on the uh, uh, enhanced uh, income tax credit. We plan on taking the lead on on raising minimum wage and indexing it to into uh, indexing it to uh, into in to inflation. And we're just hoping that the rest of the country and yes, Congress can also pay attention to the fact that Maryland is not waiting for other jurisdictions to be able to protect the children of our state. Another intriguing initiative is a service year after high school. Uh, the state is going to fund a year of service to any uh, Marylander who, who wants that. $15 an hour pay, $3,000 bonus to anyone who completes that year. Tell us about this. What task would they be doing? And, and this is coming after actually a little decline in volunteerism during the pandemic. That's right. A, a, a significant decline in, in volunteerism. And also, it just so happens, uh, a significant decline in basic civic participation. Uh, where in the state of Maryland alone, we have 10,000 vacancies in state government. Uh, and that means basic functions are not being performed. And so in, in my day, on day one, I signed an executive order that created the Department of, of Service and Civic Innovation, where, you know, I was said and very clear that we are going to be the state that serves. Uh, we also, with that, in that department, that is where our service year option is going to be housed. And Maryland will be the first state in this country to offer a service year option for our high school graduates. And they can choose however they want to do it, because we're going to partner with the private sector. We're going to partner with nonprofits. We're going to partner with labor. But so if a student wants to focus on the environment or if they want to focus on early childhood or if they want to support veterans or if they want to work on the environment, it will be, it will, or, or animals, it'll be their choice. And we're going to do it for three reasons. One, I'm a big believer in experiential learning and giving young people a pathway to be able to figure out what it is that they want to do with themselves and create pathways for them to be able to do it. The second reason, this helps address the college affordability crisis. And the third reason is because service is sticky. And in this time of political divisiveness and political vitriol, it is service that will help to save us and help us to get to know each other again. And I, and I know I saw this on the campaign trail where I had people who I served with in Afghanistan. I was a paratrooper with the 82nd Airborne Division. And I had people who I served with in Afghanistan who came and campaigned and who came and door knocked on behalf of the campaign. Many of them were not Marylanders. Many of them were not Democrats. But they literally came to door knock across the state of Maryland and just simply to say, let me tell you about the guy that I served with and why I think you should support him. Service is sticky. And in this moment and in this time, I believe deeply that service will save us. James Carville. So, Governor, a few months ago, I don't know how long it was, I was listening to NPR. All right, so that's okay. And they had the outgoing president of the University of Maryland, Baltimore City. And that was like one of the great stories yeah that I've ever heard about what a staggering institution that is and how many STEM people they educate from disadvantaged backgrounds. I, 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 I was literally blown away by it. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about that institution? Because I don't think, I didn't know about it, and I'm like, holy moly, I had no idea something like this existed. Well, I, I think to understand the, the journey of the institution, you do have to understand the journey of the leader, uh, and that's uh, Dr. Freeman Robowski. 
who uh, who is uh, not just a remarkable leader. He's a he's a mentor of mine. Uh, and he's and he's a personal friend, and he and you're right. I mean, this is an individual. When he first came to uh, UM, it's UMBC, the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, it was kind of a sleepy commuter uh, school, kind of on the outskirts of, of Baltimore City, uh, and has now turned itself into an international powerhouse. Not just developing STEM graduates, but particularly black and students of color who are now right. some of the leading scientists, engineers that we are seeing across the state and across the country and across the globe. And, and I think there was a, a few, there are a few mechanisms of, of, of a secret sauce. One is uh, Dr. Robowski is just an extraordinary individual. And there's a level of commitment that he made to this and a level of durability that he brought to this work. He's been, they've been, other schools have been trying to recruit him for years. Uh, and he stayed and he stuck because he knew how important his leadership was in that time and in that, in that space. I think the second thing is there's a measure of belief and investment that actually took place of finding the kids early, sparking that level of interest, investing in them, and knowing that that is going to be the most important ROI, the most return, return on that investment that you could ever make, our ability to invest in education. And I think about how we look at it from our perspective where in my first budget, in our first proposed budget, you know, we make historic investments, uh, literally the largest investments ever uh, that the state has ever made when it comes to our students, uh, supporting our public schools, creating pathways uh, for students to be able to get involved in STEM careers and, 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 and jobs of the future. Uh, if we can get the education pathway right, everything else will solve itself. And I think UMBC has just been a core example of that because now it is truly one of the real treasures of the state of Maryland. So, so, Governor, you're, you're in an advantageous position. You're a Democratic governor. You have a Democratic legislature. What are the kind of marks that, that you would like to accomplish in your first two years that would show other places that are similarly situated is to what we can do to advance places like the University of Maryland, Baltimore yeah. County? I apologize, Sam Baltimore City, Baltimore <laughs> County. We love, them, we love them all. We love them all. We love <laughs> no, but you know, I, I think, um, you know, when I when we went out and campaigned, uh, I, I remember, I think one of the reasons that we won, and, and you have to remember, I mean, we first entered into this, uh, entered into this race, and, and, and you know, and, and Al, you, you know this, I mean, you follow this race very, very closely, where we were one of almost a dozen people who ran uh, for the Democratic nomination. That include, included, you know, three statewide elected officials, four people that have run statewide before, two cabinet secretaries under President Obama, uh, the former head of the DNC, and me, right? and a nonprofit leader. And we started off at 1%, and we ended up winning with not just the, the largest margin in 40 years, but the most individual votes than anyone who'd ever run for governor in the history of the state of Maryland. And we did it by going everywhere. And I remember going out actually to Baltimore County, uh, uh, one of the more conservative areas, and I was telling them about my plan for small businesses. And one of the people said, uh, they said, listen, I really like what you're saying, but I got to tell you, I'm on the other side. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, it just means I'm a Republican. And I told him, I said, do you know a question I never once asked my soldiers? What's your political party? And I told him, because it didn't matter, right? I led soldiers and we had one mission, we had one directive, and my job was to bring our unit together and go advance big things. And I think about what that means in terms of our agenda, where there are, you know, 10 bills that I proposed. First time, by the way, in eight years that a governor has actually put together an agenda and actually testified on behalf of their bills. I put together 10 bills in this legislative session that focus on everything from tax cuts for military retirees and, uh, and, and, low, and, and low and moderate uh, income earners to the service year option, to making sure that we're focusing on, uh, on, on, on green electric vehicles, right? And I know of the 10 bills that we proposed, seven of them have Republican co-sponsors. We're building a different type of coalition here in the state of Maryland. We're building a coalition where it's not just about energizing the base, but it's about enlarging the base. And I think people are going to see that we are going to have the ability to get big things done here in the state of Maryland. But it's because we're being intentional about making sure that we're not just getting the votes for it, but we're getting the universal buy-in to be able to actually operationalize these things and make them work for everybody. Thank you. Before I go back to Al, I assume that you, you campaigned on the Eastern Shore and uh, Alleghenies in Western Maryland in addition to 
press charges and, and listen, you know I did. You know I did. And you know it's funny. Of the 24 jurisdictions in the state of Maryland, we won more votes than any Democrat uh, had ever won in in 17 of the 24 jurisdictions in the state of Maryland. We campaigned everywhere. And so it's actually amazing watching the base and the energy and the fervor that's been built out in places like the Eastern Shore, places like Western Maryland. And, and, and I tell you, James, you know, we, we, we honored it. You know, my first trip, my first trip that I took as governor was out to Western Maryland, to Laconia, wow. and a place where, in fact, the mayor of Laconia, he told me when I, went to, when I went out there, he said, you know, there's probably not a Democrat in three miles of anywhere that you're, any direction you're looking right now. <laughs> and he said, but I tell you what, he said, you're the first governor that's shown up here since 1996. There are a lot wow. of places in this state that just feel completely left behind. I, thank you so much. I, I so agree with you and so admire what you're doing, uh, Albert. How'd you do in Calvert County? We have a weekend place down there. That's pretty Republican. <laughs> we won. <laughs> Did you win Calvert County? Oh, my God. Wait a, you, know, you can brag to Steny Hoyer on that. That's right. Uh, that's right. It's because we showed up. It's because we showed up. That's what they want. They want somebody who sees them. They want to know that when we're making these decisions and we're pulling these ideas together to make sure that, that you, you and your group, that you are in the room. It's part of the reason that I'm so proud of this cabinet that we've built. We have built the most diverse and inclusive administration in the history of the state of Maryland because I want every single Marylander to look up at our administration and say, I see myself. And this administration honors that. Let's talk about crime. 26 murders in Baltimore just in the month of January, mostly gun violence. Mm -hmm. With the U.S. Supreme Court's awful pro-gun rulings, there's not much more you can do on gun control. State already has a relatively tough gun law. How do you, on crime, how do you thread the needle between some on the left who say defund the police and the hardcore right who just wants to lock them up? Yeah. Um, the, the issue of, of violence um, that we have seen. I mean, it is. It's. It's. It's also personal. You know, just last year, I actually had to come. I came off the campaign trail because in my home church in East Baltimore, a 69-year-old grandmother um, who was also working as a custodian inside that church was killed in the church basement. And I went off the campaign trail to go speak at her vigil. I mean, this issue is real. And I think over the past eight years, we have seen how homicide and, and non-fatal shootings having, have doubled, doubled in the state of Maryland. And that's not just Baltimore. In fact, if you look at the data, uh, while Baltimore takes up a majority of those numbers, the increase is actually rising at a higher pace outside of Baltimore than it is inside of Baltimore. This is a statewide challenge. And so there's a few different things that we've got to do. One is, you know, yeah, you're, you're right where Maryland has, uh, has, has pretty strict gun laws, but we're just not doing a very good job of enforcing them. We've got to get these illegal guns off of our streets, period. Where I just was up, up in Cockeysville just a couple of weeks ago because we had two of our officers that were shot, one of whom was put, in, who was, uh, you know, uh, put on life support because they were shot with someone who shot them with an AR-15. So we have restrictions on this. We're just not doing a good enough job of enforcing them and being able to protect folks. The second thing is we do have to do we do have to do more and invest more when it comes to creating measurements of support for our law enforcement. If you look at our proposed budget, you know we proposed 122 million dollars for support for federal for local law enforcement, uh, and that includes 17 and a half million dollars for Baltimore City alone. Uh, now that but saying that we're going to support our law enforcement. And we're going to support those who are running towards danger and also saying, but we also have to address the fact that, that is, it is inexcusable that in the state of Maryland that we lock up more black boys between the ages of 18 and 25 than anywhere else in the country. By the way, number two is Mississippi, that we have to address both of those issues. And it's not binary and it's a false choice when, when people tell us that somehow you have to choose between investing in law enforcement and also making sure that you have accountable law enforcement and people can feel safe inside of communities. And the third thing we've got to do is we need to make sure we're creating better partnerships with our federal partners and also localized coordination. 
you know, there's something that we did an $11 million investment in called uh, MCAC, which is basically our coordination and analysis center that gives all of our local jurisdictions a chance to communicate, a chance to share data and intelligence. And ironically, do you know a jurisdiction was not involved in MCAC? Baltimore City. How is the state's largest jurisdiction, the state's largest city, and the one that is wrestling most with this issue, not involved in coordination and intelligence sharing? So little things like this that we have changed in the earliest days of our administration shows that we are going to support our law enforcement entities and make sure that the resources are there because we're dealing with a significant shortage as well. Uh, but also making sure that our communities are safe and the way we are and we are not going to arrest nor militarize our way to safe communities. We can do both of these things. And that's what the state of Maryland is going to do. Governor, let me ask one more before turning it back to James. You're too young to remember this. But in the old Tonight Show, Johnny Carson had a segment where he'd give the answer and then you had to guess the question. So let's try it. Here's the answer. Quote, my only focus for the next four years is being the best governor that Maryland has ever had. End quote. What do you think the question was, Governor? Um, the question was, uh, how is, uh, you know, how is Maryland thinking about its future and what is it going to take for Maryland to win this decade? And not nothing to do with whether the governor will someday be running for president, right? That's, that's out, right? <laughs> this is going to be Maryland's decade. This is going to be Maryland's decade. And I'm excited to lead us into that charge. Boy, I tell you, I didn't get anything out of it. But it was a perfect answer. Go ahead, James Carville. <laughs> so, so, Governor, before I let you go, you said something that is very dear to my heart. That I don't real I don't know if you realize that you said this, but it's something that absolutely drives me crazy. We focus too much on murder rates and not shootings. That's right. We've just gotten a lot better at at treating. If you want to get mm -hmm. shot, go to Baltimore, or go to New Orleans. They they got a lot of experience in keeping you alive. Yeah. But I, I, and I think you're, you're a very influential guy in the national stage and policy. And to the extent you can, when people are reporting on it, that the rate of shootings. Yes is much more tells a lot bigger story than the rate of murder. Amen. And I got to tell you, I, 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 that, that same incident that I was just referring to in, in Cockeysville, where the two, where the, you know, our, our two, you know, brave officers were shot uh, with the, with the, with the AR-15. I remember talking with the, with the doctor who helped to save their lives. Uh, his name is Dr. Scalia. He is a, a, a longtime physician over, over at Shock Trauma. Uh, a place that is responsible for saving more lives than anyone could possibly imagine over these years. And, and, and so I, I went to talk to Dr. Scalia and I asked him, um, how are you doing after he just, he just finished surgery on one of the officers? And you know what his answer was? I'm exhausted. I'm tired of continuing to do the same procedures. Where you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, and I think about it even in, in realms of, of, of combat, where people look at the, the numbers from... World War II or the numbers from Vietnam, and they look at the numbers from Afghanistan and Iraq, and people say, well, Afghanistan and Iraq was, you know, there, there obviously wasn't as much fighting or because it wasn't as deadly. No, we had great medics and great docs who were able to save people's lives. But, but make no mistake about it, the number that we have got to focus on and zero in on is the shootings, because we cannot rely on the fact that we have a world-class medical institution or world-class medical uh, capabilities that's saving lives, that somehow is giving us a false impression that people are feeling or pe that people feel safer in their neighborhoods and their communities. We've got to stop putting so much pressure on our healthcare industry to save lives of gun violence. Well, Governor, I'm, 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 I believe in quitting while you're ahead. I think we way, way ahead on this interview. I don't, I don't know if I can take it any further, but I mean, your insights and and, and wisdom and understanding what's going on, I, I think, uh, you know, you got a great future. Just remember, never be Brazil, the nation of the future, and it always will be. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you're going to be Brazil. Yeah, I'm not worried about that, but I, I was, yeah. I'll second James. Governor, thank you so much for being with us. Good luck, and, and we're going to get to Annapolis soon. I love it. Let's do yeah. it in person. Let's do it in person. We'll do. Let's get a crab cake or two. Right. Hey. God bless y'all.
James, let's talk Republican a little bit. Ron DeSantis, widely seen as the most likely alternative to Trump in 2024, published a book that had nothing to do about literature, all to do about political ambition. Uh, they all do that. The New York Times said those looking for a personable DeSantis will be sorely disappointed. He ain't warm and fuzzy. Uh, and I don't pay a whole lot of attention to polls at this stage, but I do think it's fair to say that DeSantis is about to be tested as he never has before. He ran against a weak opponent when he f was first elected. A lot of people thought Gwen Graham, the daughter of the senator and governor, if she had won that primary, she might have beaten him. He ran against old Charlie Chris last time. But he's going to face scrutiny now that his tough guys screw the press alone. He just ain't going to cut it. He has little idea what's in store for him, James. Well, I, I, I think I'm, I'm right on this. I, I, I think he has some kind of a, like a medical condition that well, I don't know that, but it certainly appears that there's. A I, I've certainly, I've certainly read that. It might be erroneous, but the stories are legendary. Of, you know, I don't, I want to, I want to say he's aloof. He's just distant, and you know, at some point that probably uh, catches up to you. Uh, you know, I, I've always thought that that Trump would not be the Republican nominee in 2024. I'm, I'm starting to doubt that view a little bit in, in that it seems like he's going to get indicted probably by, probably Manhattan by a full, too. Uh, county grand jury and maybe it may be federal yeah, could, could yeah, be a yes. three for um, it, it could be it could be could be but but if he is what's it going to be the effect and i think a, a real effect would be that they will view DeSantis as a traitor for aid and abetting the enemy and that republican base will just consolidate against, you know, Biden, crime, family, woke prosecutors, or whatever the shit they say, you know, they'll say all of that. So I, I, I don't know, but there's, DeSantis has got a lot of left, a lot of football left to play, I promise you. And his, you know, you know this, because you've been covering it for 40 years or so, and I, I know it because I've been around it. Some people are just, right. can wallop AAA pitching and they just can't hit Major League Baseball pitching. It, you kind of warned this. It was one thing, but it was the Sanders Ukraine thing was totally unimpressive. Totally. I mean, when he gets out of bathrooms and into real well, issues, that's what, he, and, and he also might not you know, have he's got a, he might not. There's just a couple challenges. There's that. I think you're absolutely right on that. That's how he handles uh, uh, the likely Trump indictment. Uh, and also, he doesn't. When Roger Stone and Donald Trump start to attack him, he just didn't. He ain't gonna know what hit him. Uh, that's, you know, the, the book banning, woke attacking Florida governor isn't going to cut it there. And, you know, the, the dilemma that every Trump opponent has is, do you stay above the fray, every Republican opponent, or do you try to slug it out with him in the gutter? And you know something, James? Neither approaches work very well. Well, the yeah. other thing is that the Endorsed Bush by the establishment. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Right, you know, now Jeb Bush, I really didn't endorse him. I was calm, but whatever. But, you know, they're going to take that. And like I say, the difference between picking on some kind of woke parents and dealing with Roger Stone and Susie Wiles and Donald Trump and that whole crowd. That, that, yeah, and going back to your point a minute ago, ball yeah, look, yeah. I don't think always the most personable candidate wins. But e even with these change rules, and as you know, I think it was, a, it was, it was wrong to uh, eliminate the New Hampshire primaries, the first one. Still might be. You don't know what those Democrats will do up there. But you've got to do a little bit of retail politicking. I mean, you just have to. And if this guy is as bad a retail politician as people suggest, uh, as you say, that's going to catch up to him. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in they, they kind of get stuff thrown his way like he didn't believe because, you know, the press is going to give him you know, a complete, you know, pat down vet. Trump is, it, it's long to stay as hot as he is for as long as he has to. Yeah, I mean, uh, you can, you mentioned earlier, at this stage, let me get the, the years right. Uh, at this stage, 20 years ago, would it have been? No, you know, 16 years ago, there was a clear front runner for the Republican nomination in 2008, James. You know who that was? Rudy Giuliani. Somehow it didn't quite work out, did it? No, and, and you know, it, it, he's just got a long time to sit out there. And 
you know, the book, he's got one pitch, all right? And that he's, quote, anti-woke, whatever that means, unquote. But, you know, you, you can't just say that. What he, what he did now, you know, Charlie Chris may not be the best candidate in the world, but goddamn, man, he, got, <laughs> he be walloped him. All right, so it's, it's then of course, he's going to have all the money in the world, but uh, if I yeah. had to guess... Let's move to Chicago. Uh, Mayor Laurie Lightfoot, an incumbent, finished a distant third. First time in 40 years an incumbent Chicago mayor has been rejected. Uh, it set up a runoff between the school chief, the former school chief, Paul Vallis, who's lost more races than uh, Harold Stassen, I think, uh, he's white. He's tough on crime. Uh, he's going to po- be opposed by Brandon Johnson, a black county commissioner backed by liberals and the teachers union. And that city is about a third black, third white, third Hispanic. I'm oversimplifying a little bit. And I, I tell you what worries me. I, ho- here, I hope in a general election that it doesn't really get vicious on race. Um, it threatens to. And I hope Johnson abandons this defund the police notion, which is a crazy idea that most blacks oppose. And I hope Vallis loosens his ties to the police union, which is, I think, often very detrimental to the kind of reform you need in, uh, in uh, police forces. So I, I, it's going to be a I, – I worry a lot about this April runoff, uh, James. Well, uh, you know, Vallis was in New Orleans for – a while. Did a good job in Chicago, too. Like, school school well like down there. Yeah. Um, you know, he's a... Uh, you know, it's, you, you know, it's, it's going to be billed as the, you know, FOP against the teachers' union, which I think is kind of an unfortunate... Who would you cheer for? But, uh, you know, it's also going to be key as to where the his, Hispanic community goes and they tend to be, you know, a little bit more, and, you know, you, you just look around, and, and we've said this for a long time, people are tired of the crime, and they're tired of the disorder, and they're starting to vote. And I, I think that Mayor Lightfoot got caught up in that. I mean, there's just too much disorder out there, and, you, you know, voters are, are, are pushing back, and urban voters are pushing back. This was a the really stupid thing that I think people now yeah, know it's stupid, there was a certain, it, it's hard to unring a bell. She conveyed a certain arrogance, which is a newcomer to politics uh, is not helpful. And, you know, she she paid a huge price. You know, I have to tell you one, right. Paul. I think you're right. Paul Vallis was a good school superintendent in Chicago, New Orleans, and I think it was in Philadelphia, one other city, too. Uh, but uh, let me tell you my one Paul Vallis story. This is 25 years ago when I ran into Bill Daly in Washington, and I was running a foundation for uh, the Wall Street Journal, Dow Jones, in which we invested in uh, high schools as uh, a lot of budget cuts were forcing the closure of high school newspapers. I said to Bill Daly, would you give me the number of Paul ba- Vallis's flack? I'd like to call and see if we could start a high school newspaper in Chicago. And he said, fine. The next morning I get the office, James, and the phone rings. I pick it up. It says, hi, Al. It's Rich Daly as in the mayor, Richard Daly. That's the way they do things in Chicago. And we started a public high school newspaper, which, you know, did pretty darn well for a long time. I'm not sure Chicago works that way anymore. I think it's hard to work that way anymore. And I have questions as to whether Vallis or Johnson is going to be able to do that. It's still a remarkable city, but you're right. The crime problem is just huge. And, and, and for what I know about Laurie Lightfoot, which is not enough, not a lot, but she was not that kind of power. I mean, she was pretty... Is pretty angry in, you know, I don't care who you are, what race you are, what gender you are, or anything else, you know, you may have Chicago, it's still, you know, city and neighborhoods and, you know, ethnic groups and, you know, it's a strong mayor. Being mayor of Chicago it is, is one of the bigger deals in American politics. It's the politics. legacy of the dailies. It really is. Yeah. And it, yes, yeah, and that strong mayor system there and she she just didn't come across as a mayor well the one thing it shows too that is that the uh, the the old the old powerful ward committees are just a shadow of what they were in school remember the great story of abner mikva back when he was a law school student and he and he uh, came into the you know one of the ward committee men and he wanted to volunteer for adley stevenson who was running for governor and the guy said uh you know who sent you 
and Ab Mikvah said, nobody sent me. And the, the committeeman said, I don't want nobody that nobody sent. So uh, that's, that's the way it worked then. I think it's probably a little bit different today. Probably, but maybe more like that yeah, than most any maybe, other place. Maybe, yeah, Philadelphia too, maybe. But you know, yeah, you're right. Maybe, you know, it's not like it was in, you know, 1965, but it, it's more that way in Chicago yeah. than it is yeah. in most other Okay, we'll be areas. watching that race carefully. Uh, and the other race, James, we're going to watch, which we can touch on very briefly, is it was the huge Wisconsin State Supreme Court uh, uh, race. This is instructive because it, there's always been a sense where, you know, maybe the, the, the I'd call it for lack of a better term, the Trump wing, you know, when they saw the havoc it brought about in 2022, you know, cost them the Senate, cost them, you know, a lot of House seats, that, you know, Republican voters would be enlightened and not necessarily more moderate, but but just more kind of acceptable candidates. Well, Wisconsin, <laughs> no way that's going to happen. And they got the most extreme person that you can imagine just in a, in, in a kind of runoff. Uh, and I think people are, with good reason, confident that the Democrats will win that. But I wouldn't say if I, it's, it's, it's absolutely critical, essential on a thousand different levels. But and people should donate and volunteer and help. We're going to come back to that because we're going to have Ben Wickler on the uh, state party chair uh, to talk about it. But okay, we'll follow both those for the next uh, month or so. Hey, and now for the outrage of the week. You know, companies are winning contracts for the $52 billion federal semiconductor and manufacturing program. They're now going to have to provide an affordable child care for their workers and contractors. Already, Republicans are bitching about the Biden administration's rules. House Science Chair Frank Lucas accused Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo of paying less attention to the critical need of chip production and focusing instead on imposing their labor agenda. Congressman, you just don't get it. Providing affordable child care for workers, like most major countries do, is going to assist and accelerate enabling the United States to be more competitive in semiconductor manufacturing. It really makes a difference if you get the best workers and you don't eliminate those who can't come to work for you because they don't have child care. And that's more Americans than you seem to realize, Congressman. This is a perfect use of government policy and leverage. Those benefiting from government subsidies, which these are, in turn, subsidize family needs of their workers. No one has to apply for one of these contracts. Those that do is gonna, will find it easier to get good workers with this child care provision. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is, this is something the government should do. They should have, you know, affordable to free child care. And by the way, you, you, you complain you can't find employees? Well, you know, if you ask women to choose between their kid and a job, they're going to choose their kid. And why, why, why force them into that choice when they can have we can have quality daycare? The return on that is going to be enormous. You can imagine the, the, the amount that they're going to pay into Social Security or Medicare or, or or anything else, and these children will grow up, you know, with, with really terrific daycare, terrific early education. I, 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 I can't. I just can't believe anybody's against this, but you know, hateful people are. So, you know, what can I say? Or stupid, I, I, stupid people. Really stupid. Right. I guess my outrage would be how I'm not outraged by all the revelations about Fox and Dominion. I mean, I know very from pretty well to real well uh, Tucker, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, but and whatever you say about none of them are particularly stupid people. And they know exactly what they have to deliver. They have to deliver exactly what their viewers want them to tell them. And what, what this exposed is, of course, that they were completely aware of it. And that is going to continue. It, you don't exist in that ecosystem unless you tell people what they want to hear. They have no leeway as, as TV posts. They have to toe a narrow line. And... They knew that when they didn't tow it, 
and uh, they started going to Newsmax. These people are going to get the information that they want. And if you're a politician or you're a news outlet, you better continue to give it to them. Because they're not, they're not going to accept anything but that. And the idea that it's all a lie and bullshit, that, that makes them like it more. <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't affect them. We just think of it in, in the wrong way. They're, they're not going to change. They're going to get what they want to get and facts be damned. And that's what this shows, and it, it, it shouldn't be surprising. Now, it's going to cost Fox a lot of money, but uh, got a lot of Amen, money. James, and I sure hope they settle before this case gets up to the Supreme Court because uh, uh, this, is a, this is a terrible defamation case to take up uh, uh, to a court that doesn't much like Why do you want it to settle? Oh, shit, I want to watch them. Burn. Because, <laughs> because, I, because I fear that if it goes up to the Supreme Court, they will use it as an excuse to change Times of East Sullivan, and that would be a disaster for the country and the media. And, but they, they, they don't get this one get, if they want to change it. Well, they, but they, they got to get, get a good one. One of the reasons the smart lawyers told the Post and the NBC uh, to settle on the Valerie Plame case was because it was a terrible case to take up before the Supreme Court. And uh, yeah, they may find one, but it, but it's it's going to be harder. The uh, the case involving Sarah Palin was not a terrible case to take up, but this one is. I'm I'm just you know I'm, I, I I give anything to watch <laughs> under cross examination. Well, I think they're going to lose. I think they're going to lose, and then the question is, do they appeal it? That's what I'm talking about, really. And now for the questions. Uh, James, we got a whole bunch, which I'm going to try to combine into one question. Charles in Christchurch, New Zealand, uh, wants to know, he ha here's the scenario. Joe Biden moves Kamala Harris aside as VP and chooses Liz Cheney. Uh, and Jill in San Francisco uh, says, basically, don't worry about Harris. Uh, I love Biden. The advantage of incumbency is too important. Uh, and then we have Dan in Newton, Massachusetts, who says, could it be such a terrible thing for Joe Biden if he replaced Kamala Harris with another person of color, like maybe Val Demings or Stacey Abrams or Cory Booker? So you can take them all, James. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, there was a, a, a piece, uh, you know, I think it was Puck, with, with, with Karen Finney, who is a top advisor, to Vice President Harris, and, and basically, don't you dare think about doing this. It would be an insult to women of color everywhere. And I mean, they know where they stand, and that is, that's their defense. And you can expect to see this increasingly aggressive because they can look at poll numbers like anybody else can look at poll numbers. They have focus groups like anybody else has focus groups. And I'm telling you, they're going to have a hard defense that to insult her and not have her on the ticket is an insult to the party's base. And you can, you can just see this coming. You can see this coming. And, of course, the one thing you can't say is, well, nobody focuses on the vice president. They're going to be more focused on the vice president if Biden runs for re-election than at any time in American history for the reason that he will be 86 when he completes his second term. And you can't, it's not going away. The questions about his age are not going away. The questions about Harris are not going away. You can, you, the best you can do is just gut them out. But they, they, I mean, last week you had that piece. You had the Greg Craig piece talking about having an open convention for beep. You had the Mark Leibovich piece. Uh, it, it, it's just going to get worse. Isn't, it, it can't get better. There's no way to get around it. I couldn't agree more. If Biden runs, and all signals are that he's going to, Harris is going to be his running mate. I mean, there's no way in the world he's going to change that. And uh, it, that problem will not go away. Not only will not go away during the campaign, it won't, if he's successful, it's, it's not going to go away win, for four years. Right. So it's just what it, it is. It, every time that something happens to him, Every, every sentence he utters, every flight of steps he walks up, every everything. Right. And it's just going to be an obsession. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, no. I, I, and I, it, and I, I can't say it's unfair. I, I, and, and her numbers are, are 
just to be kind about it, are, are singly unimpressive. No question. Rob in Brookville, Maryland, says it appears, this is Rob, that Ohio, Florida, and Iowa are reliably red states at this point. He said, I'm not convinced. He says, I think maybe Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan uh, are blue states. Uh, I would quarrel with Wisconsin, but uh, so far, so good. So he says, other than Texas, do either of you foresee any other states changing their current color from red to blue or becoming solidly blue or solidly red in the coming years? Pretty good analysis, Rob. Um, I think that North Carolina is a stronger candidate than Texas uh, because, again, it's not easy. But uh, I think if they would do a better job of registering blacks and uh, that, uh, you know, you would have a shot. Biden didn't lost North Carolina by a point. Uh, I, I think it's, you know, it may be winnable. I think Texas is a stretch. I, I just, Texas someday is going to be, ha it will happen, James. We've been hearing that now for the last 25 years. Uh, I'm beginning to doubt it's going to happen in our lifetime. You know, sometimes when these things happen, they just happen. You know, it's, it's going, keeps going down, down, down. And then, you know, you lose 2%, 3%, then all of a sudden you fall off the cliff. I, I agree with you about North Carolina, I, 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 if we ever could get, figure out how to get black turnout in North Carolina anywhere where it's close to where it should be, uh, we could probably do pretty well. Uh, I'm a little more optimistic about Texas than, than, than maybe you are. I wouldn't call myself optimistic, but a little more. The, the state that I'm intrigued by is Mississippi. It's not a lot, it's not a lot of electoral For the votes, governor's race, certainly. The governor's race, and you know, the, the, the floor number in Mississippi is kind of 47 for a Democrat, yeah. which you, know, you need a unique set of circumstances still. And the problem with Mississippi is you don't have much migration, like Georgia, Arizona, places like that, that have, have kind of turned into blue. I guess my, my kind of question, a kind of fun question is, is Marjorie Taylor Greene calling for a national divorce? From her? What, what is Georgia? <laughs> Yeah, where does Georgia go? <laughs> she said all the blue states, and the red states, should, the red states should succeed from the union. Well, who's going to determine where does Georgia go, Marge, or where does Arizona go, or, or Wisconsin, or North Carolina, or I don't know, Nevada? James, you you I mean, don't think you don't think that Marjorie Taylor Greene has carefully thought this through? I think that she has a digital team <laughs> that tests different messages as to what will get you three-quarters of a million dollars yeah. in the next four hours. And I think the digital team said, come for a national divorce, and they, they will send you money. I think that's what's behind all of this. All of it. Wow, she's something. Hey, yeah. Mark in Lincoln, Nebraska says, how do we determine where our money will make the biggest difference? That question is asked frequently, uh, and no one better to answer it than you, uh, J.C., well, my general rule is, is I think a direct contribution to the campaign is the best expenditure of a small to medium dollar fundraiser. And my suggestion is, is that spend a little time online. It's not very hard. You can go to like toss up races. I, I believe as everybody is in this business to cook political report, they generally get it about right. Or, you know, look and see what governor's race is up. I mean, Senate races, they all could use the money. But as opposed to, look, if I had a million dollars, I'd dippy it up a lot of different ways. But if you got, say you got a thousand dollars, you got allocated, determined, you know, say I want to do four races, I get $250 each. Do your own research and send the check to the campaign. The reason is, it, and it changes, but the campaign has more leeway with what is known as hard money. That's direct contributions than it would with anything else. So that's my, my big recommendation is figure out a race that you got a real shot at, you know, but it's not guaranteed in, in, in a race that really matters. And, I, you know, I did a fundraiser last night for uh, Ruben Gallego in Arizona. Send Ruben a, a, a check. Uh, there, are plenty, there are plenty of people. Sherwood Brown, I just saw doing a terrific job. I was watching him on television from East Palestine. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're more than ample places uh, to send you money. Uh, North Carolina governor's race, 
And I, that guy that the Republicans are running, he is on the other side of crazy. He fits right in. No, I agree. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think James is right, Mark. I would say if it's this year, uh, Mississippi, uh, the governor's race down there, and if it's next year, a bunch of the ones James named, named but that North Carolina governor's race and John Tester in Montana. But you can you yes. can do your own research. There's a lot of good people uh, who, who are going to need your money, Mark. It's not and I was just te texting with uh, Senator Tester's campaign manager, Shelby Donick, of our wards in Kansas. And sending out a, a fundraising appeal for, for Senator Tester's critical state. By the way, your money go further than Montana than than most anyway. You you can get a lot of bang for your buck there because it's not that yeah it's not that overly expensive. No big media markets. Uh, yeah. Uh, Andre in Atlanta, Georgia, said, I read Jane Mayer's Dark Money and Sheldon Whitehouse's scheme. It's truly appalling and scary. Why doesn't the media report seriously about the scandal of money in politics and dark money in the Supreme Court? Boy, right on, Andre. Sheldon Whitehouse, one of our favorite guests. Jane Mayer's Dark Money is the best book uh, that's ever been written on money and American politics. Um, I was fortunate enough to have Jane work for me years ago, and she is a, she is a gem. And she's going to be writing a book about the Supreme Court, so I think your some of your prayers will be answered, Andre. But, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and others ought to dig into these stories more than they do. It's not just one big story. It's an ongoing, everyday story. Well, you know, we did a show on this, but in former Arizona Attorney General is Terry Goddard, got signatures in a ballot initiative that anybody in Arizona that spent more than $5,000 has to disclose. That's the essence of dark money, is it's not disclosed. They put it to a test. It got 73%. I can assure you from all my years in politics, 73% is a good number. I, I take 73% any day of the week. So. The really critical thing is, is in you and people like us that that are horrified by this issue, a lot of times we sell these issues as kind of half-shirt issues. This is good for you. You take this medicine. You don't think it tastes good, but it'll be good for you. No, the public wants this. They want it by, by, you know, three to one. And I not only think that the Times or the Post or the Journal or, I don't, you know, whoever that should do more stories on it, more candidates should run on it. Should run on it. And they ought to put it in the ballot the way they did in Arizona. Florida. Yes. Florida has yes. referendums. Yes. Mississippi has referendums. Put it on the ballot. You're going to win. Yeah. It, you know, just like we win Medicaid expansion. Every time. Every time. And, you know, it, it is a good, it's not say good, just good. It, it's, it's a stunning political issue. And the critique people buy everywhere that that it's just kind of sort of bought and paid for out there and if, and if you got dark money you got more influence than the average guy and if you give the average person a shot to somehow or another i don't know you want to say level the playing field but make it less treacherous than it is they're going to be fought every time so it's, it's actually a winning political issue right sure is paul and andover in new jersey one of the great moments in his life was when he met Mr. Carville briefly while working on the Harris-Wofford campaign a long time ago. Oh my he said his question yeah. is, uh, do you think it's possible to gain the GOP presidential nomination without throwing down with Trump once and for all? I'm not quite sure what he means by that, but uh, take. Yeah, I you know, I can think we talked about that. In, I think what he's saying is, is how indispensable are Trump and his followers to the GOP? And the question is, they're overwhelmingly what the party is about. And it, 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 it doesn't, in my view, and I've expressed it many times in this show, is MAGA was here before Trump, MAGA's here now, Trump is here, and MAGA will be here after Trump. Trump is just a manifestation of something that has existed out there even before he came along. And other than time, I don't see how we get rid of this. It's just something we've got to live with. Yeah. Trumpism is going to live, I'm afraid, James, long after oh, Trump, uh, which is the great fear. I, I've kind of come to more call it MAGAism, but because, like I say, it, I think MAGAism predated Trump and yeah. I've lasted him by a long time, but I can call it whatever we want.
Andy in Canberra, Australia. We love those down yeah. under folks. We really do. We got a great audience down there in Australia and New Zealand, uh, James. Uh, yeah. Andy said he was alarmed to hear recently that some congressional seats are still being won unopposed. Surely this is a sign of ailing democracy. It sure is, Andy. And, you know, one of the great... This is not a panacea to solve all of our problems with democracy or politics. But one of the great scams is gerrymandered congressional districts. It's a scam not just because it favors one party today, mainly the Republicans, uh, because both parties do it. It's a scam because they, when you take away a competitive seat... All it does is drive people to the left or the right. And if you want to have a House or a state legislature that really tries to legislate, you want to have more people who don't just have to appeal to one type of voter and don't just worry about their primaries. But uh, the politicians like it because it becomes an incumbent protection act. And Andy, you're right. I just wish I knew a solution. Yeah, so... It, it about 50 years ago, and I'm, I'm just going by memory, I could have something wrong, but there was an LSU basketball player who was quite popular called Eddie Paul Binkus. And they'd introduce him, and, you know, they always put you, you saw the hometown, Canberra, Canberra Australia. So wow. They, I, I, and he was a, uh, was quite, quite, I think he's pretty good. I mean, he'd be A-level guy, but he was, you know, he, he, he was popular. I think he played on, like, that first Dale Brown team. But, well, it's so, so long ago, my memory could be totally shot on that but uh you know australia we got i'm glad to see we got so many uh listeners in australia and new zealand we got a, a new zealand letter here today too let's see uh, if smith will let us do a show down there james yeah down of hey, thunder down under. right uh of course you're right and he's right and, and gerrymandering has just is just sucking the blood out of democracy and i honestly think the Supreme Court is just, of course, I know they're just fine with that. We're just, we're going to pay a price for this Supreme Court for so long, we can't even imagine it. And But they're getting ready to cut these agencies' ability to do anything. The, 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 these guys are, are going to get it, and they, they want a lawless kind of frontier federal government, and that's what they're going to get, and I hate to say that. And that means unlimited money, unlimited gerrymandering, unlimited anything that you want. And it just translates into more and more and more corporate power. Oh, I wish I could disagree. I can't. Chuck in Lake Lure, North Carolina, says, now we're at one year in Ukraine. How will this end? Do we need to hit Russia more militarily? How else? Well... The, the stories today were pretty darn encouraging. I mean, now the, the best estimate is they lost, they've lost 75,000 people in a year. Now, remember, Russia's not even half the population of the United States. That's more people we lost in Vietnam I, over, over 10 years. Well, but, over 10 yeah. years. I think we lost like 55 yeah. is the best, yeah. the best sort of number. And, and Remember, they even Russian, even Russian medicine was probably better at keeping people alive today than American medicine was in 1968. I, I don't know that, but it's probably comparable. And this thing did not go well. I, you know, I, but I, I go back to our conversation with, with, with Admiral Servetus, and I keep seeing more and more of this. You, you know, we've got to buck up support. If you look at the polls and support this war, the Ukrainians are winning this war. But we're losing the war on the home front. And you're getting people more and more aggressive about we don't have a blank check. And Putin's hope is that he guts it out. And we, what, that was Zirohito and Tojo's hope in, into ni- 1945, that the U.S. would weaken and they could get some kind of a negotiated peace. That's exactly the bet that Putin's making. He can no other way out negotiated peace now. He's not going to win that war. And he's got to be careful. There's some chance you could have a Ukrainian breakthrough. But these last 48 hours have not not been good for Putin, have not been good for Russia, but they they think they can gut it out, and they may be right. They don't care about their their loss of life. Their their whole military doctrine since before the czars has just been mass. I mean, the the number of people that they wanted, but 
the number of people they were willing to you talk at Stanley arithmetic in World War II. Jesus, man. Here's, here's my dilemma on the question. The two experts that I really look to are Ann Applebaum and Stephen Kotkin. And Stephen Cocken, in a great interview with David Remnick in The New Yorker, says, look, basically what has to happen is some kind of an arrangement where the Russians get to keep Crimea and a little bit of the Donbass and Ukraine joins the EU, which is a pathway somehow to NATO eventually. Uh, and he acknowledges that neither side right now is gonna, would accept that, but ultimately after many more tragic casualties, that may be where they go. And Applebaum says, no, we... This war ends when the Ukrainians win this war and drive the Russians out. That may take a long time. So um, it, it's um, it's scary. It really is, and I think a lot more people, you know, people are going to die. You know, one of the things that, like, drives me nuts, and you hear this a lot, you know what it needs to do is get smart people in the room and listen to what they have to say and base your decision on what smart people but. All right, I know plenty of smart people. And you know something, and, and, and Alphabon and Stephen Cotton are you know, obviously two of the smartest people about this that exist. Smart people seldom agree with each other. All right? Except for us, James. So, yeah. I mean, I, I mean that's, the, that, that's where judgment comes in. Because, you know, that, that, that's, you know, you ask, you, you get five smart people and you get six different opinions. And all of them sound <clears throat> very logical and very persuasive. And, but, but we did that too. How can we know more than, than, than Parkin or Ann? And, you know, don't know. But I, I suspect that, I, I, but I, I don't know this, I, maybe they can come up with something on the level of popular sovereignty where, all right, you 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 hold a vote in in Crimea, hold a vote in Donbass. Now, who conducts it? Oh shit! Okay, I, you know this is this is a kind of Pollyannish, you know, D.C. cocktail party thing. But maybe there's a way you could do it, and you know we conduct elections anywhere, and you, you know. But the the problem is if you you know the Russians take over certain things, they'll just kill everybody, cut everybody's throat. That that the Ukraine. You, you, when you start thinking about unringing this bell, oh my God! Well, I yeah, I think you're right. I think the one thing I think the Biden administration. I think Joe Biden has handled this brilliantly. I mean, he really has. This has been he has been a great wartime leader without qualification or question. I think one of the things he's been measured and and trying not to escalate too much out of fear that the Russians would have a counter escalation. I, that's happened. The Russians will do anything. And I think if there's any change in the times ahead, I think the Biden administration has to supply even more uh, weapons and even faster, whether it's planes or whether it's, uh, uh, you know, surface-to-air missiles or whether it's, you know, they can hit Russia. Uh, there's no more time for caution. Yeah, yeah. The only caution I'd say is we don't have an unlimited supply of ammunition. True. We don't have an unlimited... I mean... In, in, and we worry about in, Taiwan in, in, and other places. Yeah. You know, there's there's things that, you know, honestly, like you, you, they, your, your parents and my parents would say, you don't need to know everything. You know, that World War II generation, you know, we want to know everything now. You know, we'd, we'd be mad if we didn't know about the Doolittle Raid. Why didn't somebody tell us, God damn it? Government operating in secrecy, you know, whatever. So I don't know, but I know enough to know that, you know, you, you cranking this crap out pretty high level and you got to have real stockpiles because you, you got all kind of other mischief in the world and, and, you know, we don't know for sure. Which means that you're going to have to have a, 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 I'm sorry, a significant increase in defense spending which is not going to please uh, the liberal wing of Joe Biden's party. But that's that goes to being able to explain you know, this. I th yeah, it's only a, a, a fairly small part of the party, and they don't have very much sway. Uh, but, yeah, it, it'll be some, but it, it, the more 
critical thing is that the, the, the right wing of the Republican Party, which is dominant, they're, they're losing. Look at the polling on Ukraine. It, it relates to American support for it. It's declining in by more than a little bit. I went to a dinner the other night and I said that somewhere between a quarter and half of the Republican caucus in the House uh, would be very supportive of Viktor Orban, who was this terrible autocrat in Hungary. I think that may probably understate the case, but, you know, it is it is what it is. But Yeah, I mean, that's their kind of model. Right. It, it, it's, but but the, the thing in, in Ukraine is, yes, I think the president's done a terrific job, but, man, there's, there's a lot left to go here. Even if you take, uh, uh, you know, Potkin's case or you take Ann's case, you know, you, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of green between here and there, they're saying. The yeah, pool there is. Chuck, it's a great question, uh, as all yeah, are, yeah. and we'll get to those we didn't get to next week. We tried to combine a couple this week, so we got more in. Those we didn't get to, uh, you know, we can get to next week. But thank you. Please keep them coming. You know, Alf, i just say something about the quality of the correspondence we get from our listeners. I mean, they really are focused on their heads are where they should be, all right? The, 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 the questions we get are almost universally uh, intelligent, relevant, you know, and, and, and forces us to think to answer them. So, I mean, this show, I mean this from the bottom of my heart, we can never be any better than our listeners are. And we've we got some terrific listeners out there. Well, uh, I, I agree. It goes back to Jimmy Carter. that He wants the government just as good as the American people. We want a show just as good as our listeners. So thank you. Keep them coming in. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsor, Sleep Me by Chili Sleep in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them because when you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning.